Hey everyone, welcome back to the Banana Data Podcast, a podcast hosted by Data IQ, where we discuss the good, the great, and the ugly of AI in our bi-weekly episodes. I'm Chris. And I'm Corey. Let's dive in. So you're joining us today for the ninth episode of the fifth season. We're almost at double digits. We're running out of fingers. We're going to have to start counting toes. So if you're joining us for the first time, you're in luck because you can subscribe and listen to the Banana Data Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a little unfamiliar and, and you don't remember what happened last time, CPM, fill us in on the deets. Yeah. So last time we had a guest, uh, Nathan Manheimer, the Director of Data Science and Machine Learning at Tableau. And we talked all about data visualization. We touched on topics ranging from the best data visualization practices to where we think data visualization is going next. For all our listeners out there, we've had some guests in the past few episodes, but you might be stuck with me and Corey for the next few episodes, just the two of us. I think we're going to play that song, just the two of us. We can make it if we try, just the two of us. <laughs> You're the captain now. Oh, gosh. No, no. no other special guests. You're the captain now. Yeah, so this is officially now a pop culture podcast. So CPM, we're going to talk about data humanization at the team, the strategic and the enterprise level. Doesn't that sound fun? Sounds like a big task, but I think we can handle it. I think data strategy is a huge topic. So maybe we'll talk about it in a couple of different lenses here today from the ground level all the way up to the ceiling level, but we'll do our best. For those of us listening to the podcast and can't see this visually, you're really missing a gem here. <laughs> So I'm going to start with a question. Why should anybody make the effort to do any of this? Like, is there an ethical responsibility we all inherit when we join the field? Like, why should anyone try to put any sort of data humanization practices into their day to day? That is a fantastic question. And it's a very broad question, to be quite honest. So let me answer it with one simple statement, which is yes, <laughs> of course. But I'll answer it in one um, specific way. Thinking about teams and individuals who are analyzing data and imagine if they have a strategy versus when they don't have a strategy and see sort of what happens in this hypothetical situation. Let's say you go into a data analysis with a specific hypothesis in mind. You can imagine that you have very deep tunnel vision. You're very focused on this one hypothesis and you sort of ignore subconsciously the rest of the inputs that you have in your data set and you sort of answer a question you know maybe accurately but you miss a lot of other information that's out there i don't know if anyone out there has ever seen this famous selective attention experiment where a bunch of different people are throwing a basketball back and forth and you're asked to count the number of times that the basketball is passed you might have a correct answer to how many times the basketball was passed but you will miss the quote-unquote dancing gorilla. There is a gorilla that passes by in the background and they're dancing and you have your attention focused on just counting the passes. You miss the bigger picture, even though your analysis is very straightforward and answering the question at heart. I think now would be a good time to remind people that with the dancing gorilla example, that if you love the Banana Data podcast, if you get my uh, segue here, <laughs> Bananas. <laughs> Please be, feel free to subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts so you can get more of this great commentary and poor man toes and, uh, and all these other, all this other analysis. So that sounds really good. Like, you know, you want to be more strategic because, you know, why would you want to go into any job and just focus on the day to day? It's like after a while, it becomes kind of exhausting and you don't really know kind of like what's the whole point of all of this. 
Yeah, well, well, to that point there, that ambiguity sometimes is pretty helpful. And I think in this case with sort of the gorilla example, there was a little bit of study done specifically in the data science space around this. In genome biology, there was, a, there was an article that was written about the selective attention. And ambiguity actually was something that was beneficial in a data analysis in some respects. So, of course, having a very specific hypothesis is a good data strategy for answering that one specific hypothesis. But allowing your data scientists to explore the data and find other meaning or maybe find hints that are there for plot twists in your exploration is also going to generate insights. Insights that you weren't ever really sure that you were looking for in the first place. So it's sort of like a yin-yang here. You need a little bit of both to have a, a viable data strategy. The worst case scenario is you don't find anything interesting when you're exploring, but the best case scenario is you find something interesting. You find a plot twist. You find something that you maybe will generate a new hypothesis about and go exploring. So avoiding that tunnel vision is helpful, but having a hypothesis is, is helpful too. Well, let's continue on this example because the task at hand was to find out how many times the basketball was passed. But like you're ultimately, it's more of a distraction to get you to see the gorilla that's like you're not really <laughs> supposed to be paying attention to. Yeah. So my question is like, what is the value of the swift answer versus the accurate answer? Ooh, okay. So that is also another type of data strategy, swift versus accurate. It's a really big one. And it depends on your client situation or it depends on your use case example. Occasionally, it doesn't really matter as much the accuracy of your answer if you need an answer right now in this moment. Because occasionally, whether you're building a, a really complicated deep learning model or you're tuning and training models that are more complicated, they often take more time to train. And so you can get a higher accuracy when you have a more complicated model generally, but you lose out on that latency. So occasionally having a much quicker model, a swifter model, a simpler model will get you that answer much faster, but you might have a little bit less accuracy or a little bit less faith in that answer. So here you might ask yourself, what is more important, a timely answer or an accurate answer? And that would totally diverge or make a decision point as to which strategy you would take. So we're talking about a swift answer or an accurate answer, but what about a transparent answer? So just like we were talking about swift versus accurate at the model level, transparency also comes to, into play with the model level, right? More complex models have less transparency, but a higher level of accuracy. More transparent models have a low level of accuracy, but more interpretability. Transparency comes into play at the enterprise level with companies and what companies might want to do with their data strategy. So imagine the push and pull that comes along at that level. The company is much more transparent with how they're using their data, both internally and externally, and even how different teams within the organization, how they're going to have different access to different data sets with sensitive information. The more transparent they are with that usage of the data, both for their employees and for those citizens that are using that data or giving up that data, you are more likely to gain trust of those individuals involved. And more trust will allow for more data generation and vice versa. If you look at companies now that are having issues with the idea of like how they're collecting data, what they're using in that data, if they're selling that data, you know, the third party aspect of that data, it's really hard to kind of take 
any type of model they might build or any type of consumer decision they might make seriously because you're going to be very skeptical of it. Trust is really inherent, whether it's from an internal perspective or an external perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And imagine if your data is almost like the commodity for some of these companies. If you really don't know how your data is being used, why it's being collected and what's in it for you, some of those elements we talked about, about humanizing data in, in our first episode this season, feeling a part or, uh, of the greater good, feeling like you're contributing to something. If you don't know what your connection is to this, you'll lose that trust and you'll not want to give up that data or not want to be involved. We've talked at, at length about the GDPR movement and, and how that is sort of facilitating the transparency here. And all of that is really helpful in, in creating this feedback loop of instilling trust, but also being able to then generate more data by virtue of having that trust with companies and also with individuals. And it's really important because we've been talking about all season about teamwork at the data level, you know, the, the skills that you need to be a data vis, uh, of visualizing data or being a data scientist, being a citizen data scientist, and just talking about feedback loops just now. And the important thing in feedback loop is the matter of experience here, because if we're going back to the team level here, the less experience you might have, the better it might be in terms of perspective that you're mm -hmm. able to provide that feedback, because the better representative you're going to be of the general public when it comes to how that data is utilized, how it is consumed, and how it is managed. So we're talking about how we could bring in all different types of perspective into data. And when you're looking at this from a strategic level, it's really valuable to have a diversity of viewpoints when it comes to being able to build your AI strategy. 100%. And it's kind of like the difference between the argument of open source versus closed source programming or tools, things of that nature. I think that one of the biggest arguments for having open source data um, is similar to like having patents and intellectual property on your inventions. Think about it in that light. If you have a patent for a product that you've built, technically anybody could look up your secret sauce. They could look up exactly how you built your invention, what tools you use, what are the new things that are out there, but you're protected in the sense that nobody can copy that and make money off of it. But why is that a benefit in terms of like open source code, similar sort of concept there? Well, you are allowing the masses to see what you've done and build off of it maybe make something new, maybe make something more creative. Take those Lego blocks that you have in your open source and build something that's never been created before. You're allowing the democratization of the code that you've written or the patent that you've created in your uh, invention, not losing any of the ownership over that intellectual property, but allowing for the masses to run wild and, and create Data science is just as much of an art as it is a science, as we say all the time. So allow for the science to be documented, but the creative elements and the artistic elements to still be there. And all the patent lawyers that are listening to this podcast that are just salivating <laughs> right now, they're oh just so happy. Let me call my lawyer. I, I don't know if I said anything wrong there. <laughs> so CPM, you made the argument about the value of transparency when working with data, about how you're using that data, the strategies involved, the types of tools that you're using, and the value of that sunshine. 
as we saw with companies like Facebook, for example, there is definitely a challenge when you are not being transparent with your data and it is not clear how you're either giving that data to third parties that are either paying for it or involved in some sort of partnership in some capacity. And you, the user, don't know that like if you are going to search something or click on something or do something that you're going to be fed a very specific ad that tells you that tries to pull you to a purchase, for example. And what happens when you don't disclose the data up front and then your consumers find out about it and then they get really mad about it? <laughs> bad things. <laughs> Simply bad things, data, yeah. Bad things. <laughs> we're going to go back and kind of circle back before when we're talking about the trust. So if you have trust with your consumers, that's a really good thing because then you could go and expand upon the type of data that you're using and you have your consumers that are fully trusting you as the stewards of that data to be able to utilize it to help prove the mission, vision, and goals of the organization. When you don't have the trust of that data, then that opens your company to a lot of scrutiny. A couple of months ago, 49, and if I recall, there are 50 states in the US, 49 attorney generals filed a lawsuit against Facebook. It stems back all the way back a few years ago for how they were utilizing their data and how it was being provided to a third party vendor for specific purposes related to the 2016 election, for example, with Cambridge Analytica. You can look up that example. We're not gonna focus on it now. But when you don't have the trust, and you are sued, then you start getting more scrutiny. Like, for example, is Facebook a monopoly? Because is you have the Facebook platform, and then now Facebook is now ma not making any data distinction between using that platform use, and using the other platforms that it owns, mainly Instagram and WhatsApp. So if you're using WhatsApp, that data is free to flow to Facebook, and Instagram's data is free to flow to WhatsApp. Any sort of barriers that have previously existed no longer do exist. And so a lot of people now that were already concerned with that are now equally concerned, which is a really great example of the best practices not to do when uh, you're using consumer data. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> Establishing that trust and, and maintaining that trust is going to be an underscore here as a strategy that we recommend <laughs> for anybody who's within the data space. Just like any relationship, once you break that trust, it's really hard to build it back up. And any good relationship is built on that foundation. So, you know, maybe we just change the podcast from the Banana Data Podcast to Relationships 101 with Corey and Chris. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, my wife would really love that. <laughs> We've been talking about two pillars so far, which is really transparency and trust. It's transparency and trust at the user level. It's transparency and trust at the team level. It's transparency and trust at the enterprise level, level too. And yeah, at the model level, exactly. And when you're trying to humanize your data, when you're chiefly focusing your data on being a commodity and not necessarily the consequences of violating that trust, then that isn't a very good example of humanizing your data. And I guess another spin, and I guess to close this out here a little bit, you know, humanizing your data, it's also affecting the human. Everything that we're doing with data science and our data strategies is ultimately going to affect someone or something. And that's always important to keep at the forefront of our minds. What are we doing and, and who is it going to affect? So, you know, sometimes we can get lost in the numbers or the models or whatever the case may be, but keeping that at top of mind is always going to be important. 
That's a really good point, CPM. Getting lost in the numbers. Data science is not a very easy subject to understand. You know, we're talking about citizen data scientists becoming more prominent in this area, but you really need a lot of understanding and at the very least, a lot of baseline training to really understand not only what you're supposed to be doing, but the consequences to what you're actually doing, what those outcomes are. So CPM, does the nature of data science and the fact that it is very technical, does it work against humanization? I think can work against in the sense that the technical aspect of it is very deep. But I think that's the challenge is to, to dig out of that hole. I think when you reach that ability to humanize your data or actually tell that story or give that interpretability, you're expanding the minds of those who are either too deep in the weeds of the numbers or those who are uh, don't ever get into the weeds of the numbers. It's it's bringing those insights to both parties. So it's not something that I see as a detraction. It's almost the challenge at hand that we have to overcome. The more we overcome it, the more that we're able to be able to deliver those insights to multiple parties. I wouldn't let it be something that holds us back, but almost be something that excites us. <laughs> no, totally, totally. Well, as a practicing data scientist, I'm kind of interested for your opinion here, at least your take, but, you know, in order for an organization to have a scalable data strategy and a humanized data strategy, you know, is the tooling here key? Like, does it have to be usable for both the practical users that the data scientists, the people who are going to be in the weeds here that have the understanding here? And does it also need to be usable for the non-technical personas? Is, you know, are we fo focusing on like the, maybe the C-suite folks that understand the number outcomes, but they don't necessarily understand the inputs that go into producing them or how the models are built or how the models function or stuff like that. And like, how could we build a humanized strategy to take into account of both? I think that all of those parties need to be involved in some capacity, even if they're not going to be the ones who are going to be hands-on cleaning the data, building the models, or if you're not the one who's going to be making the next decision point for the company, everybody needs to be in some sort of alignment. And we always talk about collaboration. It's, it's never more true in this sort of fashion. Imagine if you have a data team that's working really, really hard on a project, really, really hard on a model, really, really hard on a use case for days and days and, and months and weeks, whatever. And they end up finding an answer and they report it back up the chain to, to upper leadership. And they're like, okay, that's great. But we, that's not something we really care about. That's not really a direction we wanted to go in. And that's nice to know, but has nothing to do with our overall strategy of the company. Well, there was a breakdown there. There was a, a total loss of communication and collaboration within those different levels. And that's a problem. So having alignment with the business stakeholders and also those who are, quote unquote, in the weeds is always going to be necessary. So yeah, <laughs> yeah short answer is yes, I think you need to have alignment across those parties. So if we have any takeaways today, when it comes to your data, the models you're building and the organization that you work for, trust and transparency is key. When it comes to your significant other, your loved ones example, trust and <laughs> transparency is key. It cuts both ways, folks. Boom, boom. <laughs> well, Corey, if I can say anything, you know what? I have the utmost trust in you, especially whenever we're recording these episodes. I can always rely on you. <laughs> oh, thanks, CPM. And I can always rely on you for your expert analysis and digging me out of these holes. <laughs> and I want to give a quick shout out to one of our biggest fans, Samantha. 
she is recovering from uh, a recent uh, surgery that she had. And I know that she loves listening to all of us. So I hope you enjoy hearing this and, and we wish you nothing but the best in your recovery. So thank you very much if you're out there and listening now. That's all we've got today in the world of banana data. We'll be back with another podcast in two weeks. In the meantime, the Banana Data Podcast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next time.